0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
0: I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Dr. Mark Siegel is back with me today. And Mark, we want to revisit an interview we did one month ago. Where was the virus then? What threat did we believe it could be against us? And this time we will revisit our conversation from 30 days ago. Been a long month, hasn't it, Mark?
1: It feels like many <laughs> months, doesn't it? And, and, and I think things have changed a lot. And our understanding of this virus has changed a lot because we've been living it in real time here in the United States, whereas before we were trying to interpret information coming from China and Europe.
0: Mm. Well, we're still trying to interpret information coming from China, but more so Italy. Have you noticed at the White House briefings, they don't mention China much, do they, Mark? How come?
1: Well, I think, I think that they don't know whether to assume that China is lying about the number of cases or whether they're getting the correct information out of China. We, we, we understand we never got the correct information to begin with out of China. Why would we assume we're getting the right information now? But more importantly, Bill, we have over 200,000 cases here in the United States. So we have our own epidemic as part of a pandemic going on. So it's much more important that we rely on information right here on the ground to help guide
0: us. Mm -hmm. By the way, we are recording this on Thursday, April 2nd. The reason I point that out is because who knows what can change tonight or tomorrow over the weekend. Let's revisit our conversation, Mark. A month ago, I asked you about the incubation period. We thought it was two weeks, likely could be one week in some people. I don't believe that's changed much, has it?
1: No, it hasn't changed at all. But here's what we've learned about the virus since then. Again, here in the U.S., in real time, on our own ground, under our own scientist's watchful eye, we've learned most of the time it's less than a week. You get exposed to it, you get symptomatic, less than a week. Also, according to CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 25% of cases are asymptomatic. I would add to that, Bill, another 25% are easily missed, misdiagnosed, or overlooked. So probably up to half of the cases of COVID-19 are are go un, undetected or escape our, our detection in a way that allows the virus to continue to spread in the community. Because we've learned since, since the China outbreak, we've learned that it's even more contagious than we were led to believe, that for every person that gets this virus, two and a half additional people get it. To give you an idea by comparison, for the flu, the number is more like one and a half. So- For the flu, you get it. One and a half, other people get it. That leads to sustained sustained spread. With this virus, it's two and a half. So it's way harder to control in terms of a contagious outbreak.
0: Mm. Mark, there was a test kit that was put out by the CDC two months ago, I think. Uh, And the test kit did not work. Now, you have the benefit of hindsight here. Do you think we screwed this up?
1: I think that that it's appalling and a disgrace the way the testing was handled in the United States. I had uh, the fortune and opportunity to speak to Admiral Girard about this, who is the assistant HHS secretary in charge of health. He's a pediatrician. He's an intensivist. He's an admiral in the Navy. He's a really, really, really smart and effective person for this. But he was brought into it a couple of weeks ago. And, and I think that the genie was out of the bottle by then. I think the horses were out of the barn by then. I think what we needed to do in the U.S. was to look at China and say, what kind of rapid testing can we have in place when the virus hits here? Not if it hits here, but when it hits here. How can we get rapid testing in place so that we can do it on the spot, know, know the answer right away? Sideline people who have it or were exposed to it. Test other people for immunity and know when they can return to work. Point-of-care testing. Not tests that take days and days and days. Not tests that take... Tremendous amounts of personal protective equipment that should be better off in hospitals, Bill, where we're having shortages. Not these invasive nasopharyngeal swabs that somebody has to stick way in the back of your nose and risk exposure themselves. But something that's a molecular genetics test, like the one that Abbott has just released, that gives you results in 5 to 15 minutes, that can be used on a little device, by the way, that we're already using to test the flu. And serological tests, antibody tests, that can tell us if you're immune. Why is it that we're just talking about that now, a month or a month and a half after the fact? That has caused us, caused us, and here's the big headline, it has caused us to rely almost exclusively on social distancing, on sheltering in place, on no-group gatherings, in, in order to try to gain control of it. I think these methods will work. I think Dr. Fauci is right, these methods will work. But imagine how well they would work if we could combine them with being able to take out of circulation those who were exposed to it, those who have it and are, and are now going undetected, and then return them to work once they're immune.
0: Okay, I, I appreciate that answer. But how, how would you get a country of 300 million people to do that in late January or early February when this was largely unknown at that point?
1: I think in retrospect, we've done a poor job in the United States at. A term called pandemic preparedness we always talk about pandemic preparedness and we threw a lot of money on it back in the uh, bird flu and the ebola days and the sars days we put together uh, a bio shield bill we 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 have the mechanism but we didn't take it seriously enough because so many of the prior outbreaks were scares anthrax is not contagious it was never going to be a threat to the, the whole country smallpox never even appeared so we had so many health scares occur that weren't realistic that i don't think we realized that something like this could actually happen we had the mechanism in place but the machinery was rusty we needed pandemic preparedness to be a bigger part of our healthcare system than it is it's an absolute disgrace how disorganized and 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 how unprepared we, we were for this and are for this. We're getting there, better now.
0: There will be months There will be months, and likely years to debate that, Mark. I'm going to go back on a few questions I asked you back in early March, all right? And I, th- I let's just go through these quickly, okay? Uh, canceling large events, was that the correct response? I think in hindsight, I think the answer is yes. Would you agree?
1: Completely agree. And, and maybe more in advance of when I said, because again, I had no idea. I, I had an assumption or a presumption that, that we were gonna do better than China because we had such an advanced healthcare system, because we have such great universities and medical centers, because we have a standard of care that's pretty high here. I, I, I thought that we would be able to use that to manage this virus within the healthcare infrastructure, rather than out in the communities. I was wrong, Bill. I have to stand corrected. It turns out that it has swept out into the communities. Canceling large events is correct. Quarantining whole regions is correct. Stay-at-home orders turns out to be the best defense we have.
0: Will we soon be wearing masks, all of us?
1: Well, masks are are debatable. They're inefficient because they can spread virus. They can give you a false sense of security. They can get dirty. They can get moist. You can wear them inappropriately without a proper seal. Masks are of limited use. Where masks are of use is to augment social distancing, to remind you that you're in a different space and time than you were a few weeks ago. They have to be worn with a tight seal. They have to be discarded at the end of the day. They have to be cleaned properly. And you better wash your hands a lot more than you were before if you have a mask on, not less. Because touching the mask, you may encounter the virus on the outside of the mask. Washing your hands, disinfecting surfaces, using hand sanitizer, those are the those are the key the key issues here okay. at social distancing. Okay, I'm let, willing let, to add a mask to the picture, but only only under those circumstances.
0: You know, um, as of Wednesday, I believe, the uh, mayor in Los Angeles was recommending that everybody in L.A. wear a mask uh, of some sort or some variety, be it a bandana or a scarf or a regular N95 mask that you've talked about a lot. A couple more quick questions. I just want to keep uh, the answers a little shorter, Mark, to move through this. Did the virus jump from animal to human being? That is still the theory?
1: Almost definitely started in bats. Jump to an intermediary mammal onto humans. So, what do you think about all these? Now, it's the- getting used to humans.
0: What, what do you think about these theories about starting in a at a lab in Wuhan, China? Do you buy into that?
1: Completely disproven in my in my opinion. Under the, at this time, looked at very closely under the electron microscope. Studied, no sign of that whatsoever. Okay. I I think that that's been pretty much debunked.
0: Okay, did this begin in December?
1: Bill, I don't think so. You know, I th- I've heard too many stories of people that presented with symptoms in November that I thought were something else that ended up probably in retrospect COVID-19. In a way, at this point in time, that's good news. You know why, Bill? Because the more people that were exposed to this earlier, the larger chance that we're building up a herd immunity even now. The more people that get this undetected or undiagnosed or asymptomatic, the more immunity there is out there, goalposts to, towards a future where this won't be ravaging us. I think I think we're heading there. We're not there yet because it's a pandemic. You got to understand it takes time for the community to develop an immunity. We're not there yet. In the meantime, we got to get the vaccine and that's at least another year away.
0: Okay, then we know the elderly are at risk. Can, can you assess why men more than women appear to be affected by this?
1: I can't prove this, but I think it has something to do with several factors. One, and, and and in Italy, men are more likely to be smokers and drinkers than women, and cigarette smoke clearly affects you with a more severe case that's easier to diagnose. We, be, we may be missing milder cases in women. Also, the X chromosome has been studied and has been shown to cause an increased immunity so that women have two X chromosomes. Therefore, they have a greater immunity than men in general. Plus, estrogen plays a key role in in immunity and, and in prevention against viral attack. And 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 we don't know exactly the specifics of how this coronavirus affects the cells, but we do have a pretty good idea of how it gains entry into the cells. And it may very well be that women are a little bit more immune to it for all of the reasons I mentioned. Yeah.
0: Why don't we pause right there? More Hammer Time after this.
1: Listen to the all new Brett Bear podcast featuring common ground, in depth talks with
0: lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his All Star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm going over some of these questions we talked about a month ago again, Mark, with Dr. Mark Siegel with us on the Summertime podcast. And so much of this information appears to be out of date. And, and um, I. I could go question after question, but it just appears as if we have so many of these answers now, and the answers aren't good. So let's come to present day, Mark. In New York, they have established several, I'll call them field hospitals, for either overflow for current patients being treated in the hospital or for COVID-19 positive patients. I think it's an interesting marker in the following sense. Keep an eye on how many patients go to the USNS Comfort on the Hudson River. Keep an eye on how many COVID-19 positive patients are treated at Samaritan's Purse in Central Park. I think, Mark, that'll be the indicators for us as to whether or not the medical system in New York can handle, at the moment, the flow that's coming at them, you're feeling.
1: I think it's a little more complicated than that, Bill. I think it's a matter of a word we call triage. I think it's, you, we have the comfort there. We have, the, we have the Javits Center building up a, a hospital. We have the field hospital in Central Park. But are they going to be coordinated? How does that work on the ground? You, you, you show up in an emergency room with a broken leg and they quickly get you over to the comfort? Or if you come with COVID-19, they say, I don't want to move you. You're contagious. We have to figure out the logistics of that. We got the apparatus in place, but we don't have it greased and oiled yet and ready to use. I want it to work this way. I want the Javis Center to be a place for COVID nineteen patients that, that we that I don't that I don't want to put in the ICU. I want the major medical centers to be reserved for those that I do maybe want to put in the ICU. Let's use them for that. We have major medical centers in New York. They're excellent. I want there to be overflow hospitals. I want there to be places and this, this worked in China where they build COVID, they build coronavirus hospitals. We need we need to do the same here and we need to do it quickly. The comfort should be a place where trauma is treated, where emergency operations occur, where uh, other things are done, heart attacks, things that you you can't get in an emergency room. You don't want to expose someone who's having a heart attack with someone who has a contagious disease. You need them elsewhere. But we need to figure out how to do that at the door, not once they've already entered.
0: Well, just let me – I'll complete my thought here then. My feeling is that these beds will be occupied if they are needed. If they are not occupied, that tells me the hospitals in New York can manage the flow. And I don't know if we know that answer as of this recording.
1: We know that answer, Bill. You're being naive. The the hospitals in New York cannot handle the flow. They're overwhelmed. Sorry, you're saying
0: cannot.
1: Cannot. They are overloaded. They are overwhelmed. You got to understand that we want these patients to be in negative flow rooms where we can actually observe respiratory isolation and not endanger our healthcare workers. That's very difficult to do. The hospitals are overwhelmed with these patients. we It's not a matter of if. We're already there. We're in a situation where we're where in need of these services. They're not there as, as a, if we need them. They're needed now, and we have to figure out a way how to use them to take the pressure off of our major hospitals mm-hmm. here in New York, which are completely overwhelmed.
0: Looking at these questions that we talked about a month ago, and here was this. A lot of the CDC says the coronavirus coming here is inevitable, but the president says it's not inevitable. You remember the day that he made that statement, and we tried to understand what he was saying by then. And I believe you answered it, saying it's, it's not likely that will affect daily life because they are ahead of it. I think in hindsight, we clearly know that, is, that was not the case
1: yeah I think that I think that I, I I showed when I I went to Dulles Airport and interviewed the uh, the custom and border protection agents and the and the uh, assistant deputy of, uh, of Homeland Security I was convinced at that time that it was a leaky a leaky situation it was clear to me that people were going to be able to sneak in despite the travel restrictions that you could travel from China to Thailand and then New York and it was clear that it wasn't being clamped down on enough so I knew cases were going to emerge here despite the best, attempts at travel restrictions. What I didn't know was just how this was going to zoom up and become so widespread in such a short amount of time, and that our ability to identify cases, to isolate cases, and to control spread was going to be so limited and so unsuccessful. That's what I didn't know. I didn't know that it was this contagious. I didn't know that our ability to contact, trace, and separate out was going to be so limited. We all watched those cl- cases in Washington State. We all watched those cases in quarantine in in Nebraska, and we all said, let's watch them, and hopefully there'll be no spread. Meanwhile, the virus was spreading undetected throughout communities.
0: Significantly, too. What are we missing in our understanding, or do we think we pretty much know how infectious this is and how little we can do to defend ourselves and stop it?
1: I I think we're way from what you just said. I think we have to put the accelerator pedal and the spotlight on, testing i think we still can identify those who have it those who've been exposed to it those who have been immune to it you know bill if you've been immune to it you can't spread it so then that person could actually walk down the street think about that if i if i showed that you were over it and cured you can walk down the street so we we need to identify very very quickly who has it who's been exposed to it who's at risk of getting it we already know that and who's already over it that will help us decelerate this That's one thing. We also need to figure out how effective these treatments are that we're working on. They're actually, by the way, more effective than I expected. And I want to tell you on an optimistic note, for us to have an emerging virus come out of the blue and suddenly come up with hydroxychloroquine, which is a malaria drug or, you know, using anti-HIV drugs for, you know, figuring out exactly how the virus works in the lungs to cause the severe pneumonia, um, All of these trials and attempts to get treatments in place, not to mention the accelerated work on the vaccine, that's exciting. I don't give an F to our biotechnology community in the United States. I don't give an F, a grade of F to the biotechnology, but I give a grade of F to the coordinated response of our healthcare system. And I really give a low grade to the Centers for Disease Control as well, because I think they've been behind this from the beginning. And remember the word prevention, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's their name.
0: So much for that. Dr. Mark Siegel, thank you for your time today, and uh, we will endeavor together. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.